had taken into exile from Jerusalem Jeconiah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, together with the officials of Judah, the craftsmen and the metal workers, and had brought them to Babylon, the Lord showed me this vision. Behold, two baskets of figs placed before the temple of the Lord. One basket had very good figs, like first ripe figs, but the other basket had very bad figs, so bad that they could not be eaten. And the Lord said to me, what do you see, Jeremiah? I said, figs, good figs, very good, the bad figs, very bad, so bad that they cannot be eaten. Then the word of the Lord came to me, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, like these good figs, so I will regard as good the exiles from Judah, whom I have sent away from this place to the land of the Chaldeans. I will set my eyes on them for good, and I will bring them back to this land. I will build them up and not tear them down. I will plant them and not pluck them up. I will give them a heart to know that I am the Lord, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God. For they shall return to me with their whole heart. But thus says the Lord, like the bad figs that are so bad they cannot be eaten, so will I treat Zedekiah, the king of Judah, his officials, the remnant of Jerusalem who remain in this land, and those who dwell in the land of Egypt. I'll make them a horror to all the kingdoms of the earth, to be a reproach, a byword, a taunt, and a curse in all the places where I shall drive them. And I will send sword, famine, and pestilence upon them until they shall be utterly destroyed from the land that I gave to them and their fathers. Here ends the reading of God's Word. We're in the middle of our Sunday morning teaching series on spiritual transformation, and so far we have looked at the nature of human beings and the nature of what goes wrong with us. We've seen that the most basic, most fundamental core of our being, the essence of our personality, is wrapped up in something that Scripture calls our heart. And we've seen that what our heart wraps itself around, what it treasures, what it worships, all kinds of different ways of talking about the heart, that what our heart wraps itself around is what orients everything then that we think about, everything that we feel, everything that we do, so that what we most value influences how we perceive the world, controls how we act, throughout life and energizes us to get what we want out of life. Now, when the highest goal is God himself, then we respond to this world in ways that align with God and with his purposes, even when life is hard, so that worshiping God doesn't make life easy, but it does make life good. But when that highest goal is something that God made, something in the creation, something that we then value above him, it distorts our vision so we don't see life the way that it really is, and we act and react in ways that are harmful, dysfunctional, both to ourselves and to all the rest of the people around us. That's what we've been seeing these past several weeks. Today we're going to shift our focus to the solution. I want to think about what does God do when our hearts turn away from Him and believe that we have, something other than him, have to have something other than Him in order to have a good life. That's what we're seeing today in Jeremiah chapter 24. So let me set the stage for us. Jeremiah spent decades warning the Israelites that God was going to judge them, 
that God had called them into a special relationship with himself, that he rescued them from slavery so that they could be friends with him, and they refused. They didn't value him and value his friendship as much as they valued other things. And so they had looked to other gods, they'd looked to other nations to give them what they wanted. And over and over, very patiently, God warned them that he was not okay with this arrangement that he had not entered into a covenant, a committed relationship with them, so that they could just use him while they were hoping to get a better offer somewhere else. And he warned them that if they kept doing this, then he would let them experience what those so-called better offers were really like. They'd get a taste of what it meant to live apart from him under the influence, under the control of those other gods. That he would remove his protection from them, give them what they wanted. So they experience what life is really like, what society becomes when you factor God out of the picture. That's what Jeremiah preached. But God's people did not take him seriously. And so about 600 years before Christ came, God did what he promised. And he takes credit for it. Verse 6, he takes credit for sending his people into exile. Takes credit that he's the one behind Nebuchadnezzar coming, verse 1, taking away all of those who made society possible, taking away the king, the officials, the craftsmen, the metal workers, taking away the elites, the artisans, Nebuchadnezzar took all of them off to Babylon from Jerusalem. And it would have been very easy at that time to look around and say something like, the people who were most responsible for the nation, the movers, the shakers, the builders of industry, the builders of infrastructure, they are the ones who have been taken away. They're the ones who are experiencing God's judgment. They're the bad ones. Which means that the ones who stayed behind, those who are still in the land of promise, those have to be the ones then that God has blessed. They're the good ones. It would have been very easy to say that there's a distinction among the people of God that some are judged because they're bad and some are not because they're good. And that's not how God sees it. He tells us that there are two groupings of people, people that you can describe as good figs or bad figs, some that are so good that they are very good, that they're like first ripe figs, desirable, and others bad, so bad that they cannot be eaten. But contrary to what you might think, the bad ones are the ones who stayed. They're the ones who are still in the land. And God says, I'm about to judge them for that. So verse 8, like the bad figs that are so bad they cannot be eaten, so will I treat Zedekiah, the king of Judah, his officials, the remnant of Jerusalem who remain in this land, and those who dwell in the land of Egypt. And then he details all the things that's gonna, that are going to happen to them. I'll make them a horror to all the kingdoms of the earth to be a reproach, a byword, a taunt, and a curse in all the places where I shall drive them. And I'll send sword, famine, and pestilence upon them until they shall be utterly destroyed from the land that I gave to them and their fathers. You hear that and you think, man, that, that's a really heavy word of judgment. <laughs> that's a lot worse than being sent into exile. So you think, what did they do that deserves that? Now, to unpack that a little bit, you need to know that the exile happened over a period of years in several different installments. And in chapter 21, a couple chapters earlier, we learn about one of these, that Babylon attacked Jerusalem and that Zedekiah asked for God's counsel as to what he should do. 
God told him in no uncertain terms that if the people who had been left behind stayed in the city, then they would die. But if they surrendered to Babylon, went into exile, then they would live. And you learn in chapter 21 that God's judgment of exile was for all of his people. They had all rebelled against him, putting other gods, other desires in front of him, elevating those gods and those desires above their desire for him. And his judgment would send all of them into exile. What then is it that separates the good figs from the bad ones? The good ones went. The bad ones refused. They disobeyed again. And God says that it's their continued rejection of his voice in their lives that means that they are essentially rotten fruit. Now, when fruit rots, there isn't a whole lot you can do about it. You can resurrect some other foods, right? If the cheese gets moldy, you can cut that piece off, eat the rest of the cheese. If the bread goes stale, you can try to soften it. You put it in the microwave or you put it in a closed bag with a little bit of moisture. When fruit rots, not just a little spot here or there, but when the rot sets in, the fruit's absolutely no good at all. It goes mushy. It smells really bad. That flavor that it gets that infects every bite. When fruit rots, it's game over. That's what God says that disobedience does to a human being. It rots your soul. It infects every part of you spiritually so that the flavor, the smell of disobedience affects every part of you. You may have heard the phrase total depravity. That, that's what is being described here. Total depravity means that not, does not mean that we are as bad as we could be. But it means that the taint of spiritual corruption touches every part of us. So that there's no part of us, mind, will, emotion, actions, that isn't infected by it. That's how God sees the spiritual state of the people who are left behind. It's game over. They're rotten fruit. But then you think, is that really so different from the people who went into exile? You go back in the Old Testament, you read the book of Deuteronomy. That's a covenant that God made with his people. He promised them great blessings if they obeyed him. He also promised them judgment if they didn't. He promised that he would send them away from the land, would exile them. That means that if you are in exile, it's not because you're good, but because you've been bad. You've disobeyed God. You have done the same things that caused the rottenness in the ones who stayed behind. So how is it then that God can say that the exiles are like good figs? How come they're not considered just as rotten? It's because God has a remedy for spiritual rottenness. A remedy that comes from th three things that we'll look at today. We'll look at God's justifying grace, His protecting grace, and his regenerating grace. Let's dive in. First, justifying grace. God says that what separates the good figs from the bad is his act of sovereign grace that sets one group apart as good. Verse 5, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, like these good figs, so I will regard as good the exiles from Judah, whom I've sent away from this place to the land of the Chaldeans. What is the fundamental difference between these two groups, both of whom have disobeyed God? 
It's that God decides to regard this one group as good and not the other. He doesn't make that other group bad, doesn't turn good figs rotten. Both groups already are bad. What God does is step in to declare that this one group is now good, purely by his own decision. And so he doesn't say about the exiles, this group over here, they are good because they've done the hard work of reforming themselves. They've reversed their rottenness. They have made themselves good enough for me. doesn't say that. He also doesn't say this group over here has the right kind of internal characteristics, the right desire, the right intention. Because they want to be good with me, that's good enough. He doesn't say that. He doesn't even say this group has faith in me. They trust me to make them good, and so that, their, their, their faith, that is the basis of their goodness. doesn't say that. He doesn't tie their goodness to a single thing either done by them or anything inside of them. Instead, he says, it's all on me. I will regard them as good. I declare them good. And it's my declaration that is the start of our relationship. I declare that they are good. That's the basis of their relationship with me. It's this statement, this declaration, that is the basis then for him being able to relate to them, and it's the basis of them being able to relate to him. And because this decision is based in himself, not in them, has nothing to do with them. This is a permanent decision because there isn't anything that they can do later to change his mind. <laughs> They're not responsible for doing anything to start the relationship, which means they can't do anything to end it either. He has decided that these people, the same ones that Jeremiah has been condemning for years, the ones who share all the same failings as the ones who stayed behind land, he has decided they are good. Now, when he says that, there's still a lot of work to do. We heard some of that work out of Jeremiah chapter 31. There's a lot of work to do because he's obligating himself to take care of their not-goodness. Obligating himself to deal with the rottenness of their sin. Obligating himself to give them the freshness that they don't have on their own. By declaring them good, in good relationship with him, he's saying that he will take care of what needs to happen in order to make that relationship a reality. A reality so that he's not unjust, not just calling bad things good because he feels like it. And so he says, I will regard as good the exiles. And when he does that, you start to see the contours of what the Messiah will have to do in order to justify us. That he'll have to do two things. He'll have to take our sin from us, that he'll have to pay for our badness. And he'll have to have a record of pure obedience, of goodness, something that he could then share with us. See, God can't just pretend that we're good when we're not. That would be a lie. That's something God can't do. And so God's plan was to connect us to the Messiah, to Christ, in a bond that is so close we call it a union, so that everything that is ours becomes Christ's, and everything that belongs to Christ's, Christ becomes ours. It's a little bit like what you're supposed to do when you get married, and you promise to endow each other with all your worldly goods. I know not everybody does that any longer. 
but you're supposed to. What does that mean? It means that if somebody comes in with debt, that debt now doesn't belong just to them alone. It belongs to the union. And if somebody comes in with a savings account, that savings no longer belongs just to them alone. It now belongs rightfully to both so that they can both say the debt is ours, rightfully owed, and anything surplus is ours, rightfully deserved. That's what God plans for Jesus, that one day he would come and share in our guilt by being united with us, that he would take our rottenness on as his own so that he could rightly pay what we owe, since our connection with him means that he now owes it, and so that we would share in his obedience, so that his goodness would now account for us as well. That's what 2 Corinthians 5.21 is trying to get at when it says, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus took on the burden of what we owed, burden of our rottenness, so that we could gain the reward that he had earned through his obedience. We get his goodness before God. That's all being promised by God when he says, I regard the exiles as good. God is promising there's a future event that will happen that will determine the exile standing before God. That that future event, the cross, is going to be the final, the basis of God's final judgment at the end of time. God will at some point declare that the exiles are good, paid in full, that they have their own goodness. And because of what Christ has done at that future judgment, that de declaration now works backward in time so that right now God can say, I consider them as good. I regard them as good. And so they relate to him, not on the basis of what they have done, but on the basis of what God himself will do. And that's where we tie in, because that's not only true of the small remnant in exile 2,600 years ago, but it's true of you and me as well. We depend on God's declaration of our standing with him on his decision as the basis for why we relate to him, of how we relate to him. So let me ask you, do a little heart check, a little litmus test this morning. Is that what you rely on to relate to God? When you look in the mirror, when you see things about yourself that you don't like, things that you're not proud of, things that you feel bad about, guilty over, what do you do with what you see in the mirror? Do you say to yourself, I can't go to God like this. I need to get my act together. I need to try harder, do better. Because it's only when I feel good about myself that I feel like I can come near to God and talk to Him. You ever felt like that? Like you feel really bad about something you said or did, and so you feel so embarrassed that you waited to go to God didn't feel like you could really talk to him or ask for his help until what? Until you'd let some time go by, hoping that, you know, maybe if he was angry that he's gotten over that anger by now and he's no longer upset with you. Or maybe you've waited until you did something really good, something that you hoped would sort of balance the scales given what you had done. Or at least you waited until you had a track record of not doing that awful, terrible, horrible thing anymore, hoping that he would feel better because, okay, at least there's this track record where you're getting better. 
Ever do anything like that? Wait to go to God until you thought better of yourself? That is what we do with each other, right? When we do something that we know upsets or hurts someone, don't we try to you know, tentatively see how they're doing, maybe make it right? We test the waters, see if they're still upset with us, see if they might still be willing to be friends. We reach out tentatively, we start up small conversations, gauge what the emotional climate's like. Or we say things or do things that we think the other person will like, trying to work our way back into them liking us, trying to prove that we're really decent people, someone who is worth being friends with. I think we transfer that often to the Lord. feel like we have to be on our best behavior after we sin so that what? So that he thinks better of us. Try to do things that we think he likes, trying to figure out, does he still like us? What is all of that? That's you depending on you depending on you and on what you can do to make you good with God. That's you depending on your track record of being a decent person, someone who has some redeeming qualities, hoping that those outweigh the other things that you know are not good. That's not you depending on God. That's you not believing that He has said to you, I regard you as good. And therefore, because I regard you as good, we are good. I say that we're good, and because I say it, nothing can unsay it. That means it's on me to make sure we're good because I regard you as good. When you're reluctant to go to God, that's not what you're depending on. You're not depending on Him and on His declaration to you. You might say you are, theoretically, but it's not how you're living might sound like a nice idea, but if you don't run to the Lord after you've messed up, then you're not depending on Him and His decision to build a friendship with you. Instead, you're depending on you, on something in you to make Him happy with you. What is that? That's simply a return to the common belief that underlies secularism as well as all the other religions. It's a revival of the old belief that I'm not really rotten fruit, that I'm not really spiritually rotten at my core, and that spiritual rot does not infect every part of me, but that I believe instead that hidden deep within me, there are at least enough redeeming elements in me that when I look in the mirror, I can say to myself, I got this. I can fix this. I have the power and the ability to redeem myself from myself. I can make up for myself. That is what our world believes. And it's not what God believes. The distinguishing mark between the good figs and the bad, between the exiles and the rest of the people, is that he declares one group to be good, even though both groups have a track record of rottenness. Make a note to watch yourself this week. Watch how quickly you run to him or watch how slowly you run to him. And that'll tell you what you really rely on to relate to God. Whether you're relying on his works or yours. That's point one, God's remedy for rottenness. 
involves his justifying grace. Point two, it also involves his protecting grace. Verse six, still speaking of the exiles, God says, I will set my eyes on them for good, and I will bring them back to this land. I will build them up, not tear them down. I will plant them, not pluck them up. God says that not only will he regard them as good, but that he will watch over them for their good. He sent them into exile. They are under his discipline, but he's still their God. He is still for them. He's not against them. And he's still working on their behalf, even while they're away in Babylon, and he's at work to do what? To build them up, to plant them and anchor them. He's at work in them so that his activity in their lives ends up replacing their rottenness with goodness. It's working out his declaration of good in them. Working it out so they live out that goodness. So spiritually, they're not decaying. But spiritually, they're healthy. They're flourishing. And let me underline one more time that this is not because of their own goodness. <laughs> they didn't listen to him previously. But despite their failures, he has sovereignly decided to use his power and his wisdom to provide for them and to protect them so that they're not uprooted and not torn down. But so that they experience in their lives the goodness of being right with God. And he's obligated himself to give them what they need to have that experience. Now a little caveat here. You have to be careful how you hear what he just said. Because the context in which you hear that changes what you expect from him. God's just promised incredible provision and resources here, so much that you can now be free from worry because he's just said that he will do whatever you need in order to build you up and establish you. It's an incredible promise. But it's a promise from within the context of his larger plans and purposes for you. Now, when he's talking to the exiles, what's the larger context? It's that he's going to bring them back to the land of Israel. He will do whatever is necessary to bring them back. Why is he promising that? Because Jesus the Messiah hasn't come yet. People need to return to the land so that God will continue carrying out his plan of rescuing us from our hearts, the hearts that keep turning from him, by bringing his Messiah. That's what he planned. His people have not listened to him. They haven't aligned themselves with his plans. But he hasn't changed his plans. And it's from within that context that he says, I'll give you everything you need to build you up and to root you. What that means is he's not promising that nothing bad will ever happen to the exiles while they're away in Babylon. He's not promising that their lives are only going to be pro prosperous from here on out according to their definition. He's not promising that their bank accounts are only going to increase, that they'll never have any setbacks in their health, that somehow they're going to avoid all threats and all dangers, that they'll never experience anything that ever upsets them. It's not the kind of security that God is promising here. And that means that you can't read this passage and think that God will, is promising to never let anything bad happen to you. All you have to do is quickly run through Scripture and you realize that can't be what he's saying. You look at the lives of God's people recorded in Scripture and you realize that everyone goes through suffering in their lives. Hard things happen to them, both from other people and from living in a fallen world. 
you learn that God's people don't always have enough to eat, don't always have enough to wear. Sometimes they're driven out of their homes. You learn that they get sick, they catch diseases. God doesn't always heal them from those. You learn that they live in an unstable world, world full of accidents, full of natural disasters, full of war. That, and you learn that they don't avoid those things just because God watches over their lives. Read the life of Paul the Apostle, you realize that the outworking of this promise to Paul to build him up and plant him did not mean that Paul had an easy life or one that was free from danger. So what God is promising here in Jeremiah is not a blank check for their health or for their prosperity. He's promising that he will set his eyes on the exiles for good, that he will intentionally involve himself in their lives personally so that they end up more deeply rooted in his purposes for them. He's promising to be active in their lives so that their life experiences don't move them away from what he's doing here in this world. He's promising that what he does in their lives will make them even stronger, make them more built up and more deeply rooted in his plans to rescue them and to restore them. Promising to work in their lives so that they respond to life as good figs, not as rotten ones. That means that he's obligating himself here to make sure that all of their experiences only serve to advance his larger purposes in their lives. So that regardless of what happens to them in this broken world, the result will only be to make them more fully like him and more fully able to be with him. So don't read this expecting that God's going to give you everything you want. If that is what you're hearing God say, then what? Then, then you're reading this promise through the influence of your own idolatry. It's what we saw last week, right? That the idols in our heart distort. They put that stumbling block in front of our faces. They distort what God says. So if you listen to God while your heart is longing for physical safety as the thing that you value most highly, or if you listen to God while you long to be well off more than you long for anything else, you're not going to be able to hear God accurately. You're going to think that God is promising you things that he isn't. And it's going to make you think he isn't looking out for you when things are difficult in your life. But if you hear him for what he is saying, you'll do more than just ask him to take away hard things in your life. You will ask him for that, to not suffer. But even more so, you're going to ask him how he's using those things to make you stronger. How he's at work using those things to make you more godly, more like him. You'll start to ask, Lord God, what are you up to? How are you watching over me for good in this hard thing that I'm going through? And if you start to pray that, at some point you're going to be surprised. Because you're going to start to be thankful for what God is doing. In your life. You know how we often do that as we look backwards in life at something that was really hard? And then we say something like, I would never want to go through that again. But I'm really glad for what God did in me through it. You ever have that experience? I hear that from a lot of people. When you get on board with God's promise that He will set His eyes on you for good, you will slowly start to be thankful 
now, in this moment while you're going through it, not just later after the hardship is over. Doesn't mean you're going to be giddy. No one enjoys hardship. But as you start to believe and take God seriously, that he is very intentionally, personally involved in your life at every detail, guiding you into spiritual health, guarding you from what will rot your soul, doing whatever it takes to solidly root you into his good purposes for you, you're going to start to be thankful now. Not for the hardship, but because you're not alone in the hardship. Because you understand this is not random. It's not out of control. And that regardless of what happens, this is not going to have eternal negative consequences. This is not going to jeopardize any of the good plans that God has for you. Because it can't. Because his eyes are on you for good. You're going to become more confident that God is involved in some way shaping all of your experiences to accomplish his good plans in your life. That's what happens when you believe that God's more involved in your life <laughs> than you are. So here's the second litmus test for where you are this morning. Think about that hard thing that you're facing right now and ask yourself, do I believe that God is invested in my life for good? Or do I feel like he's just not involved? Do I ask him to show me what he's up to? Or do I just plow on like he's not doing anything? Is there some movement in me toward thankfulness for him? Some willingness to consider thanking him that I'm not alone? <laughs> or do I just complain and I can't wait to be done with this? Ask yourself those questions. They'll give you a sense of how much you believe, not theoretically, how much you functionally believe in God's protecting grace in your life. That's point two. Point three, God's regenerating grace. God declares his people good. He watches over them for their good, and he makes them good. God says to the exiles, verse 7, I will give them a heart to know that I am the Lord, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God, for they shall return to me with their whole heart. God just promised to do for them what they can't do for themselves. Earlier in the book of Jeremiah, chapter 17, verse 9, we learn that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. It sounds really bad. You think, how, how bad is that? Okay, I, we're sick, I get that. Follow any one of us around for a day and you will see that, yeah, we do a lot of unhealthy things. But how bad is bad? How bad is desperately sick? Hebrew's really strong here. The word that, that can mean disastrous. NIV, CSB versions put it as the heart is incurable. Desperately sick, incurable. It's so sick it can't be fixed. That's why Ephesians 2.1 doesn't say that we are sick in our trespasses and sins. But we learn there that we are dead in our trespasses and sins. We're not spiritually sick, born into this world on spiritual life support, just needing a little bit of care, doctoring to be revived. Instead, we enter into this life spiritually dead, 
that where life counts most with God, we come into this life with nothing of His kind of life. That means we don't need to be nursed back to spiritual health. We need to be resurrected from the dead, not simply revived. And that's the glory of what God is saying He did for the exiles. He gave them what they did not have. He gave them a heart for Himself. But it's even more glorious than that because He gave them what they had not wanted. Back in Israel, they didn't listen to Him. They weren't interested in having a heart for Him. Didn't want that. They wanted something else instead. And so they hadn't paid attention. And so, yes, He gave them a taste of what they wanted. He sent them into exile. But He's not okay to just let things end there. He still wanted them. And so he did for them what it took to restore them. He gave to them what he required from them. That's really important. Don't miss that. God gives to us what he requires from us because what he requires from us is just not in us otherwise. Think about it this way. In the law of God, God commands his people that we are to love Him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, that we are to have a heart that wants to know Him and love Him like we know and love nothing else. We're to have a heart that wants to obey Him because it wants Him. That's the condition for having a friendship with God, to be friends with the most amazing person there is. Without that, can't be friends with Him. That's humanity's dilemma <laughs> because we don't come with that heart. We are born with a heart that at every fork in the road, at every chance to choose God or to choose something else, our heart always chooses not God. No one forces us to make that choice. We have complete freedom to choose what we want. But the heart that we're born with has no interest in God. It's spiritually dead, doesn't want Him. And so on our own, it never chooses Him. Instead, we always freely choose something other than Him. So here's the dilemma. The law comes along and says, if you want to be friends with God, you must always obey Him. You must always choose to love Him more than you love anything else. That's what the law says. That's where you and I fail. And that's where grace enters in. Because God takes us with our hearts that want anything but Him and he gives us a new heart, raises our heart up from the dead, connects us with Christ so that in Christ's resurrection we rise. When the Holy Spirit applies that to us, we have a heart that actually wants him. We have something in us that we didn't have before. That's what God promised the exiles, that he would give them what they had not wanted, a heart to know him that he would provide for them what he required from them. And he did that so there'd be a relationship, so that they would be his people and he would be their God. So that they would return to him. Why? Because they wanted to. Their new heart longed for him. That's his promise to you. His promise is that the prerequisite for you coming to him is not that you want him. That's not the prerequisite. The prerequisite for you coming to him is that he wants you and that he gives you what you need so that you do want him. Why? Because he acts first. 
because only after he acts do you then desire him. Once he takes that first step, gives you that new heart, now there is something inside that responds to him, says, yes, I want you also. So how do you know if that's taken place in you? Third litmus test for this morning. Ask yourself, do you have any movement toward him? Any desire in there to be with him? Do you have any desire to hear from him? Or you could ask it from a different direction. Do you have any hatred of sin? Not because you don't like the results that it brings in your life, but because it puts distance between you and God, and distance is not what you want. Or you could ask it from a third direction. Do you have any wish that you could be closer to God? Any sense of him not being as present in your life as you want him to be? If you have any of that, what's that tell you? It says that you have a new heart, a heart to know him. That's true even when you don't feel like you're very close to him. I know it's counterintuitive to think like that. But if you do not have a heart to know him, if you have a heart that's still spiritually dead, it's impossible to miss God because you never really wanted him in the first place. You can't miss what you never wanted. If you have a dead heart, one that is thoroughly rotten, you won't even have enough spiritual sensitivity to notice that he's absent. You really won't care that he's absent. Only those who have a heart for him want more of him. And only those who have a heart for him have the spiritual sense to know that they don't have much of him. You can only sense his absence when you already have some of his presence. So today, if you have any desire for more of God, that should encourage you. You should get excited. You didn't give that to yourself. If there's any movement toward God, it's only because God's already decided to move toward you to do for you what you can't do for yourself, to give you a heart for him, real spiritual life. This is how he rescues his people from their idols, by giving them a heart that wants him more than it wants anything else, a heart that can turn from worshiping something in the creation to worshiping the creator. So if that's true of you, trust him. You're not good enough to give that to yourself. Trust that he's already started that inside of you and then take him up on this change that he's made in you. Run to him. If you need to confess your sins, do that. If you're weak and struggling, ask for more of his grace to seek him. If you feel far from him, ask him to be closer. If your heart is cold, ask him to warm it. If the reality is that he gave you what you needed when you didn't want him, don't you think he'll give you more of himself now that you do? We're in chapter 24. For 23 chapters, Jeremiah has been telling people that they need to turn to God, that they need to stop trusting in everything but God. And for 23 chapters, they haven't listened. Those 23 chapters tell you 
It's not enough to live in the promised land. It's not enough to be religious. It's not even enough to hear God's word. It's not enough because if you have no heart for God, then you will keep turning away from him, refusing to listen, that you'll be spiritually rotten. And your own life experience teaches you that once fruit rots, it's impossible to unrot it, that you can't unspoil spoiled figs. But God can. That's the miracle in your heart that God does. And it's a miracle that cost him. Because the promise of restoration is not found in the promised land. Those who stayed behind did not end up with new hearts. The goodness of the land did not make the people good. But the promise of restoration is found in a person. God's son who had a heart that fully obeyed his father. Jesus who left his home in heaven and went to, into exile here on earth who obeyed the Father his entire life, even when God told him to go to the cross. Jesus obediently went into exile so that your disobedience didn't leave you alienated from God. He left his Father so that you could become God's child. He became homeless so that you could have a home. He didn't fit in on earth so that you would fit in in heaven. He was cast out so that you would never be. What's your heart saying right now? Does it give a little shrug and say, eh, that's nice? Or does it say, I want more? <laughs> I have to have more. Life is not worth living if I can't have that kind of love. If there's anything inside of you right now that moves toward him, run to him. Run and get more because you're simply responding to what he's already doing. He will give you more. That's his delight. Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you for your sacrifice for us, for your leaving all of the comforts of home so that we would not be permanently exiled from the Father. Thank you that you have paid for us, that you have given us, shared with us your goodness so that we can stand before the Father. Lord, I pray that you would stir our hearts for more of you, that you would be more delightful, more interesting, more engaging to me, to my friends, than anything else that we find here. And Lord, I pray that you would open our hearts now as we go to, to praise. Lord, that we would respond to you with words, with song, with all of our heart. In Jesus' name, amen.